0: Come together right now everybody come together come together right now everybody.
1: If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk welcome to the Just Not Sports podcast This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like just not sports on this week's show, we'll start with an interview with Michael Shore, a man who created the epic baseball site Fire Joe Morgan, and also so many amazing shows which you love and watch, like Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and The Good Place. Michael loves the book The Power Broker so much that his wife once banned him from talking about it at cocktail parties. So Gareth and I, who read that book on Michael's recommendation several years ago without him knowing it, have stepped in to right that wrong. And then, my friends, we're going to go deep on the country music career and ambitions of golfer John Daly. That's right. John Daly, whose song Hit It Hard, actually reemerged onto the iTunes charts just this past month, thanks in large part to a 30 for 30 about his career. So we're not only going to just talk about Daly's career, we're going to track down Gabe Spitzer, the man who directed that 30 for 30, and talk about working with John Daly, And, of course, how much of that music got into the documentary. We will also slam some hammers, give you some distractions, and so much more. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. Joining me in the studio this week, a leading sports media strategist who has logged time with the University of Colorado, the Green Bay Packers, and many
2: global sports
1: brands. It's Adam Millard. Adam, how you doing this week, man? Great.
2: Yeah, pretty good, man. Thanks for asking.
1: It seems like we started great and then it went right back down to like maybe not.
2: Oh, no. Everything's great. Okay. Fantastic. This week. This Be week. no different from any other week.
1: How's the journey to no money well, for Nebraska? Oh. Um, nothing for Nebraska. That's what you should say. Nothing. Hashtag nothing. For yeah,
0: Nebraska. I like that hashtag. Hashtag no I tried. Ooh. Mm. Ah, Garrett's mm. into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know
2: with what the a
1: dollar in, sign with a dollar
0: sign
2: for with the S, the S. Yes. yeah. You know what the N on the Nebraska helmet stands for, don't you? Oh, I don't want to know. Knowledge.
3: That's Ooh. pretty good. Hiya. That's pretty good.
2: Uh, yeah, we're getting there. We'll make it. All right. Yeah, I feel confident. Thanks, man. Appreciate uh-huh. it. How are you?
1: <laughs> I'm my usual self. Yeah. Feeling great. Yeah. Making good decisions about my health. Are you?
2: No. Well, you should. I know. We worry about you. You should. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, why why don't we talk about someone else? (laughs) Why don't we?
1: Uh, Also joining us on the phone from our Brooklyn Bureau, seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth, has New York turned to winter yet?
4: Uh, it's just that the days are so short. The, the one thing I love about New York, I think I've said this in the past, but basically it's a 10 to six work day. It's not nine to five. Now the beauty of that is that it caters to a city that likes to stay up late and or go into work hungover. I've taken advantage of both. The problem at this time of year (laughs) is man, you never see the sun. So it's a bummer. When do you guys
2: consider the start of winter?
1: I usually consider Thanksgiving started like after Christmas. What?
2: Oh, I, I think before, I think as soon as I
0: see Christmas lights, that is the start mm-hmm. of winter. I would say soon after, week after Thanksgiving, it's, you're in it.
1: I think of winter. I think of actually, I think of it as like a fifth season. I think of um, basically Halloween to Christmas or to, I think of Halloween to Christmas as, um, like the holidays, and I think of the day after Christmas through whenever it gets warmer as
2: winter. It's smart. You put a lot of thought into this. Wait, when's yeah, fall? It's then on my
1: back that plan. Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like an odd entire uh, farmer's uh, almanac on my back.
0: Cool. Wow. Like the guy from Prison Break. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, speaking of from distract, that we'll get to distractions, Joe just picked up a Joe.
1: DVD of Prison Break that he's getting into. Yeah. <laughs> what is that Hashtag show called? no
0: 90s. <laughs> yeah, whatever.
1: Uh, speaking of which, Joe Reed, producer extraordinaire, our 40-year-old millennial,
0: rediscovering the 90s. How are you, Joe? I'm doing great. You're always so upbeat, Joe. I know. You gotta be. You know? You gotta be. Hey,
2: quick question. You always ask Joe and I how we're doing, but you have a very specific question for Gareth.
4: Well, what's up? No, with that? I, I actually—I I, to I stepped in on that, Adam. What's up? Uh, Ooh, we. Uh, <laughs> I think what Brad I'm made gonna... that change. You guys haven't seen.
0: Last... You haven't seen the SNL sketch? No. What's up with that?
4: No, oh, I love that one. <laughs> yeah. Just um,
0: <laughs> I started it. Gareth finished it. Jason oh, Sudeikis
4: is uh, dancing in the background. Tremendous. But uh, no, Brad, a few months ago, stopped asking us how we're doing and started asking all of us specific questions. And it frankly made the show better because I got to stop talking about New York's weather every time we spoke. I'm also going yeah,
1: to a little out of questions this week. guys. Sorry. No, well,
0: it's OK. Sure. I was I it was just a question. You know what I. You know what I think we could let the. <laughs> what li- about you do the introduction? Yeah. If you don't like it so Feel much, free. Adam. You're
1: about to for a couple weeks, guys. Clocks ticking. I know. Right now on the show, we are going to slam the hammer. This is the process of inviting on guests. We do it publicly to let you know what people in the sports world are talking about and what they should be talking about with us. Adam, slam the hammer for us.
2: Yeah, I would like to slam the hammer anyone who can explain the mannequin challenge to me this is probably be a distraction
0: but why <laughs>
3: joe
0: i mean why why planking why good question why yeah. the harlem shake
2: exactly why, yeah why, why, why these any of it things tend to happen in sports because there are
0: mass group participation and there's
2: mass groups in sports. I think that's.
0: I think that's definitely real. You know, when where else do you? It's a lot harder to organize in your office when your little clicks. It's like, well, there, you got eighty guys in a locker room or whatever, uh-huh. twenty five guys in a locker room or on a plane.
2: But what benefit does it serve to the team
0: to do to partake in the yeah. mannequin challenge? Why is it fun? <laughs> I don't I'm know. gonna
1: answer this. I know <laughs> you're just being snarky. Yep. Wait. Yep. I, real quick, I'm being purposely snarky.
0: When we're done with this conversation, we're gonna do the mannequin challenge and post it on our Instagram. Oh, we should
1: absolutely do the mannequin challenge for. <laughs> Gareth with all Gareth has got to do our stuff.
0: Yeah,
4: <laughs>
0: Gareth, get your, get your wife to film you at your at your desk recording the podcast.
4: She went to sleep, and I am shirtless. <laughs> well, then we'll figure it out.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> all right, I I have a, a theory on this that I think these types of these are like the new chain letters. It's just something fun for people to do that's interesting and creative, and it shows off things. I think people had a ton of fun with Harlem Shake. They had a ton of fun with Ice Bucket Challenge when that moved into more of a creative realm. I think people like watching. I mean, a couple weeks ago when the campaign was going on, I thought one of the best ones was what the Clinton campaign did in the airplane, where yeah, this was really interesting and really like well done. And you and and I know sports teams were part of that stuff too. So
0: the call to action on that was very poignant. It was don't stand still. Yeah. Vote. I yeah, was like, it worked oh, out for her too. Uh, oh, I know. He changed the game. Yeah.
3: yeah. Uh, Maybe You stood still
2: for just a little too long. Uh, yeah.
1: Well, okay. Uh, Adam, uh, we get it. You don't like the mannequin challenge.
2: No, it's, it's my role on this show to be snarky. And so I thought let's throw this out and have some conversation. Think you're snarky on this show. Yeah. I don't listen. Depends to it depends on though. the day.
1: <laughs>
0: Yeah. i listen to it like four times a week.
1: Uh, Joe, I'm going to you next. Who do you want to slam the hammer to?
0: I would just be curious to talk to um, athletes. I feel like there's a, a high correlation between professional athletes who then play professional sports video games. Like I'm a football player and all of us guys in the locker room play like NBA 2K16 or whatever. Like, I feel like there's a correlation there, and I'd be curious um, why. Let me ask you this: Do you think <laughs> why do people who play sports play do video games? Do you think hey 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 like why I don't know like what is it what is it maybe it's just like you play another you sport the, you get out of your the average twenty two year
2: old NBA player. You're answering playing my question more often than the average twenty two year old non NBA average
0: Joe person I think uh I don't know I feel like you i feel like you I feel like it's such a, I feel like video game sports video games are are incredibly popular in sports locker rooms and I feel like mm-hmm. there's a I remember doing like media interviews with like the big Ten basketball teams and they would talk to us in between interviews about like who was the best at NBA 2k 14 or whatever at the time like and they would have competitions and they would play on the bus and they would play like on flights. Like, I mean, they would like, they would, it was heated. Then I just find that, I don't know. I've, I've always found that sort of, maybe that's sort of the same thing. It's something fun for the locker room full of guys to do like the mannequin challenge. Well, I'm just going to
2: say you're exactly right, Joe. In 2004, as a matter of fact, when I worked with the green Bay Packers, MTV came to do a show specifically about NFL players, Playing Madden, and we were able to get three of our guys to participate in this trend. Two of who had never played Madden. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Pretty good. Pretty good. That's uh, some right. classic PR PR
0: schmoozing. It's a weak. It's a weak hammer. I know.
1: Yeah, it's all right.
0: I just all I'm right. just curious of like what is it like? What is it? What is it about it? Like what is why because that? Is it, I don't know. Why I guess that? the
2: question is, is it truly a distraction for them? Because uh, I rarely... Or is it practice? I rarely pay marketing superstar.
0: That's Maybe that's what <laughs> is even more confusing. We've talked about this sort of notion of like fantasy, you know, us playing fantasy football and, you know, athletes, what are they going to... Like, yeah, it's it's that you're spending more time in your profession. I guess it's fantasy world, but I don't know. I'm interested in it. I like it.
4: I want, to, I want to ride Joe's coattails then and move things in a decidedly more parlor game direction. And that is, I'd like to sit down with Dustin Pedroia and Terry Francona and play a game of cribbage with them. Ooh. That was their big game in the dugout when they played together on the Red Sox. Uh, Pedroia was very upset when Tito left. They were so tight and played a lot of cribbage together. So I love me some cribbage, you know, fifteen two, fifteen four. run for three is seven. Plus the Jack is eight. See if things add up to 31. So let's sit down fellas and move some pegs around.
0: Oh my gosh, Gareth. We got to play next time we're together. My dad's a huge cribbage fan. They played in the dugout.
4: Uh, yeah. I mean, look, baseball is a slow game. Oh yeah. There's plenty of time to kill. So yeah, they played a lot. They are like dugout or, um, uh, clubhouse, just, you know, there was a lot of cribbage between those two.
0: Oh, dang. That's really cool.
4: Joe Reed, uh, I like this. Cribbage to come, baby.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Let's do it. All right. I want to talk about one of the least favorite things in my, my worldview, which is fishing. Really? I hate fishing. <laughs> oh, man. I hate. It's so boring and it's so gross. you put your hands on like bait and in fish. Oh. Oh
0: man! Well, I, I, you should not be surprised. He doesn't like gum. I am. <laughs> you're, a, you're a bit of a. You're you're a clean person.
1: I don't know who I don't know who said it, but they someone recently on a podcast I was listening to said, "I am an indoorsman." <laughs> and That is me. <laughs> uh, excuse me. But let's talk about an avid fisherman, Randy Moss. So. I saw the video clip of him at the Seahawks game a few weeks ago where just down on the field someone for show threw him one of those fish from the fish market and he caught it one-handed cuz Randy Moss is the greatest athletic talent at receiver we've ever seen just like pure skill and amazingness and I turns out he's like a super he's super into bass fishing. He's also awesome at that too. So, let's break it down. I have a couple questions. I don't I've tried to watch those fishing shows occasionally. Got some you know, confuse or I have a few questions about the way those
4: tournaments are set up. Okay. Like. like I, I actually have no questions.
1: Well, is it just size on the one catch? Sometimes they like throw them back and they like, I can't tell if it's weight or if it's like, they number always throw fish. Them back. is it like total weight don't
2: or is it them
0: in competition?
1: I can't figure out if it's like just, you're supposed to catch the biggest or it's supposed to just
0: combined. I always thought it was like you've got like an hour to catch the biggest fish you can. So you can like catch as many as you
2: there's want. A, but there's you just... different kinds of tournaments, guys. We'll get into this with Randy. Interesting. <laughs> <All right.
1: laughs> so that's it. Randy, come on the show. Let's talk fishing. Okay. Time to get to the show because we have a very packed show. We're going to start by talking about two giants of American history, Robert Moses and Ken Tremenda. Now, Ken Tremendous is the pen name and Twitter name of Michael Schur, a uh, very successful showrunner who has developed uh, everything from Parks and Recreation to uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine to the new NBC show, The Good Place. Michael tweets as Ken Tremendous because he started the website Fire Joe Morgan, which had great baseball analysis, and he wrote as Ken Tremendous for years on that site. That's how we were introduced to him. Years ago, he tweeted that The Power Broker by Robert Caro, a book about Robert Moses, um, was the greatest nonfiction book of all time. And unbeknownst to him, Gareth and I just talked to each other and said, hey, if Ken Tremendous likes this book, let's read this book. And man, it was a commitment. This is a 1,200-page book about Robert Moses, one of the most powerful and controversial figures in the history of of American politics and especially of New York city. He ran the organizations that made the roads and bridges and parks in New York city for like 40 years with almost unchecked power. And the power broker details um, sort of his machinations within the system and how he pulled the levers and strings of government and politics. And it's really fascinating. And so years later, Gareth and I said, we got to talk to Michael about this. He's the reason we read this book. And he had a ton of strong opinions. And as I mentioned on the top of the show, um, he absolutely has been banned from talking about this by his wife. So we're glad we stepped in to give him the platform he deserves. Um, And then we're going to shift gears and talk about country music and specifically the country music of John Daly. You may have seen how his song hit it hard Reemerged onto the iTunes country charts. That's in large part due to the new Thirty for Thirty that ESPN put out about his career, uh, where the uh, the song actually made it into the to the final cut. So we're going to talk about the song, talk about John Daly's uh, aspirations as a country artist, and then we're going to call up Gabe Spitzer, who directed that Thirty for Thirty, and talk a little bit more about, um, you know, the process of working with Daly and what he thinks of. John's future prospects in Nashville. So stick around. Big show. We'll be right back. October 27th, 2011, Oliver Stone signs on to direct the film for The Power Broker, you know, we see you tweet that The Power Broker is the greatest nonfiction book ever written, so he'd better not screw this up. So instantly Gareth and I just said, We should definitely read The Power Broker and uh and and check out if it's the best nonfiction book. We did. So I just before we get started, I have to ask, what is it like to hear that you are essentially the Oprah's book club to two random dudes that you've
3: never met? <laughs>
5: I'm incredibly flattered. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> uh, I uh, I feel like Twitter, in general, is a radio station that no one is listening to. So <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> to have a uh, a uh, uh, any tweet cause any good to happen in the world is like a miracle. So thank you for that. Um, but I you know I feel like any time that I have ever recommended the power broker to anyone and that person has read the power broker it's always gone well so i i'm pretty i feel like it's a pretty safe recommendation to make people because it it never fails to have the desired effect in my experience
1: and now that movie never got off the ground and there's a lot we're going to cover in the book because it's 1200 pages of just you know as thorough writing as anyone can imagine about um about robert moses or anyone else but the movie never got off the ground are you were you at some point really curious to see what Oliver Stone would have done with this, or are you secretly sort of happy that you didn't have to sit through two hours of what could have been real nonsense?
5: Two hours? You think there would have two hours? With the Oliver Stone I mean, four and a half is uh, probably more likely. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, obviously I'm curious. And like, as a Beyond fan and let's say devotee, of that book, I would be fascinated to see what would happen. I think Oliver Stone has, obviously, he's a little bit hit and miss, in my opinion. But the subject matter of, like, power and corruption is sort of right up the alley. He's not a bad choice. In some way, it's very logical that he would want to take on that project. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in all likelihood, any movie version of that book, ends up letting you down in exactly the same way that almost all adaptations of books end up letting you down if you're a true fan. So I don't, I wouldn't say mm-hmm. I'm like disappointed that it never happened. Um, but I would be curious to see it. I mean, it's certainly... I mean, the, to me, the reason that I feel like it's the most... like a, the best nonfiction book ever written is in part because the story is so cinematic. Like, it's an incredibly dramatic and cinematic... Real true story the way that Moses transforms from a sort of like you know champion of the working man in a very like he's like a champion of the working man who was the also the worst Ivy League snob <laughs> who's <ever lived>. and, <laughs> right. uh, and the, which is already fascinating. And then as he learns like the details of essentially of like how to how to work a corrupt system, he becomes the ultimate elitist. And that's like, it's, it's the actual story is so cinematic and incredible. I feel like there is a good version of the movie or probably more to the point, a good version of a miniseries that spans mm-hmm. eight or 10 episodes or something. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see it in the right hands. I would love to see it uh, dramatized, but good Lord. I mean, I, I don't know how, I don't know how you do that in one movie. It's one sort of even a long Oliver Stone version of a movie of that book is going to necessarily lose a lot of its incredible detail and nuance. And that would probably be kind of a bummer to watch.
3: Yeah.
4: Right. As, as you said, like it's got all the, he becomes like this almost like gnarled, deformed character in a Shakespearean sense by the end. Um, And to see, it does have like such a classic arc to it. And in that way, look, coming off the election, I think everybody in America has become either a historian or an amateur historian. Um, It's, it's impossible. I picked up the book this week in anticipation of this interview, and it's impossible to start reading it about like, boy, some of this stuff started so benignly, or you could hide so much chicanery in the most, mundane bill writing language to just rewrite bonds and money and power and things like that. How do you look at this book as informing our present moment? I know it's a broad question, but it's impossible to avoid right now.
5: No, it's incredibly, um, it's the, the sort of analogy or metaphor or whatever you want to call it is direct. Like, Moses basically Mm. came to power because he realized through Al Smith that no one was paying attention, right? That's like the real lesson you take from that book Mm -hmm. is, you know, and granted, Tammany Hall is like the most corrupt government ever, probably at a local (laughs) level. But at the same time, he realized like no one's paying attention. These people in the state assembly are rubber stamping any bill that comes along. The bills are hundreds of pages long. You can vary any language you want inside any bill, and you can get away with it because no one reads the bills. And the, the basic lesson of the book is, like, if you want a good democracy and you want to keep power out of the hands of a very small number of people, you have to pay attention. And all mm-hmm. of the stories that are coming out now about fake news on Facebook being shared millions of times and the kind of like the, the ease with which different various groups of people, be they uh, American pranksters or like alt-right meme generators or Russian (laughs) hackers or whatever, (laughs) the ease with which they manipulated the flow of information was astonishing. It was so easy. I mean, they, they, it was child's play and Mm -hmm. the, result is in some ways the same, right? It's like the people who figure out that no one's paying attention and decide, instead of like working hard to correct that systemic problem, decide to take advantage of it and manipulate it to their own ends, those are the winners. Those people win every time. And so there's all of this kind of, there's like a, there is currently a national debate raging between the kind of beautiful and and sort of idealistic vision of America delivered by the Obamas, which is when they go low, you go high. And the, the counter uh, argument delivered by those alt-right meme generators and uh, Russian nationalists and um, <laughs> fake news writers, which is, oh, watch this. It's so fucking easy to make people do whatever you want them to do. <laughs> and who cares? Uh, and it's very scary because the, it's not easy to find the cure. You know, it took it took whatever it took a bunch of wealthy Upper West Side uh, Manhattanites who didn't want Central Park to be privatized to Mm. finally oust Moses. Uh, But he had been he had had an unprecedented amount of power for forty years and completely redrew the largest and most important American city in his own image to the extreme detriment of gigantic swaths of the city and massive numbers of poor people. And he was a racist and a lunatic and a an insane elitist who thought that only people who went to Princeton, Harvard, or Yale should be allowed to make decisions for America. And he had 40 years of unchecked power simply because he could manipulate the system better than anybody else. And he didn't care at all about uh, what he destroyed in order to achieve his goals. So, like. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, <laughs> this there, is a
4: frightening there, vision so of like, our
5: present moment, <laughs> yeah it's exactly i mean it's it's incredibly it's incredibly apt the 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 lessons from history are incredibly bright and clear and obvious, and my personal fear, having read that book and sort of had that book change my mindset about how power works in the country. Uh, are You know, I couldn't be more
3: terrified, frankly, <laughs> right, right, what right. really happened.
5: I mean, and the other thing was, the other crazy parallel to me is that Moses realized that all he needed was the press, right? It's like all he needed was, uh, the, for the majority of the people in the city and the state who were uninformed, all he needed was to be sort of lionized as a man of the people. And once you're a man of the people, you can do whatever you want, even if you're screwing people over. Uh, And you can maintain that mantle and so he did he built highways (laughs) to the water so that people could go swimming and from that moment on for 40 years it was like well Moses can't be curious over he's a man of the people Uh, so you know it's, it's a weird like feedback loop that the public gets trapped in where they have a certain set of beliefs based on the manipulations of the person in power and then nothing that person does can undo them because they're still they have that belief so yeah. I mean, it's remarkable. It's, it's truly a remarkable parallel and you know, it, it's not just Trump. It's, there have been many people in many different countries who have sort of exercised the same kind of will and control that he did. And, uh, and those people tend to, it, there have a certain amount of inertia. Once they're in power, they tend to stay in power. That's what, that's what's really scary to me.
1: Yeah. I mean the book,
5: you know, uh, dark in your days.
1: No, no, it's, it's totally fine. And we have no illusions left my friend. Uh, now, the book kind of posits that Robert Moses had a lot to do with the fall of New York. And I, it was published in 1974 when the city had hit sort of its financial and and cultural probably nadir as it just was kind of taken over by crime and and um, corruption. That said, I keep waiting for like the revisionist history around Moses to really kind of kick into high gear. And I feel as though this book has held its message really well in in the face of that. Do you feel as though Caro's work will, I guess, be, be remain the definitive portrait of Moses? Or do you fear that as New York prospers, we will look back on the nice monuments that he built and 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 tend to shove away the, the, the really kind of wicked part of his history with the city?
5: I can't imagine a more definitive book or story being written, in part because—and Caro ran up against this in his Lyndon Johnson series, too— he, so much of it is firsthand accounts, and right. those people are all dead now, you know? Like, there's no way to mm-hmm. recreate the research that he did for either uh, Moses or Lyndon Johnson, because, you know, the, the firsthand witnesses are gone. The interview, the interview, those interviews are not available to other people. I do think that he does, for all of his, um, you know, uh, laying there of Moses' fault, I feel like there is a way in which, and this is part of why I love the book so much, He doesn't try to gloss over the amazing things that Moses did, especially in the early days of the Depression, when FDR basically says, you know, uh, we're doing this, you know, we need to put the country to work, so anyone who has any ideas for public works projects, come see us. And the day one, in my memory of the book, it's like day one of that situation, Moses shows up with like a thousand plans.
3: Like, we (laughs)
5: want to do this and this and this. And everything is incredibly thought out and played out. Here's how many people I need. Here's how much it will cost. Here's how we do the bond uh, issuings. Here's how we here's how we control the workflow. All that stuff. And as a result, there's some insane statistic that I don't quite remember from the book. It's like you know, 30 percent of all of the uh, Great Depression public works projects for the entire country were controlled by New York and by Moses because he was just better prepared, and smarter, and worked harder than everybody else. You know, there's those famous scenes well, famous to me. I don't know if they're famous to anybody else, but the scenes where he's like, he gets into his car in the morning and he like he basically starts talking and dictating memos and stuff to his secretaries uh, as he is getting dressed in the morning. He does it all the way down the elevator of his building. He does it out to his car. He sits in the back of his car and continues to dictate those memos and issue statements and requests and whatever. And he just never stopped working. And and as a result, he got an amazing amount of stuff done. And I don't think that Carol tries to bury that. I think he uh properly kind of pays homage to what he did, the state parks and the and the bridges and tunnels and stuff that no one else could have possibly gotten done. You know, he talks about that and he celebrates it in a certain way, but he also is incredibly even handed in the way that he explains that as he went along, he started to see the value of, you know, political contacts and of, of like, you know, deal making and bargaining. And, you know, he alters the course of roadways to avoid the properties of rich and powerful people who can give him favors. And, and as a result, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people's commutes end up being much longer than they should be. And he destroys neighborhoods and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I, I can't imagine anyone could create a better or more Sort of accurate portrait of Moses, but I also don't think that there's ever going to be a time where someone could present a uh, a portrait of Moses that is is only sort of glowing or celebratory because the details of what he did are so well known and so thoroughly laid out in that book that you just you would have to be it would have to be just a, a, a polemic. Uh, designed to undermine Caro's research. And I don't think anyone would be interested in that personally.
4: <laughs> Good luck with that. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's impossible to, I mean, you're in Brooklyn. Now I live in Brooklyn. It's impossible to be in New York and not, and having read this and not like you get down Sunset Park and the Gowanus expressway and I drive under it. And I think to myself, this destroyed this neighborhood or when you're driving in from the north on the Bronx, uh, the cross Bronx expressway. And you're like, how many people had to be moved to make this happen? It's, it's impossible to look at the city and his downfall at the end uh, with his total abandonment of public transportation and not Think about him. It's it, Once you've read the book, you know too much about how New York is currently today. 100%.
5: Yeah. No, I mean, I that was the thing that really grabbed me about it was if you lived in the city, it basically answers every question you've ever had about the city. When you say to yourself, why is it so goddamn hard to get to the airport? It shouldn't be this hard <laughs> to get to the right, airport. right, and right. And then you read right. that book and you're like, oh, yeah, well, that's why. And – you know when you like uh, to me i full disclosure uh my wife got so annoyed at me when i read this book that she actually like for the first and only time banned me from talking about it at cocktail parties <laughs> for dinner party. Like, she was like you have to stop fucking talking about the power broker it's so annoying and i was like you're totally right and i, <laughs> I will stop but the reason that that happened was because the numbered individually amazing stories about different decisions that he made is just, it's just ceaseless. Like to me, I remember so specifically the fight he had with, I think at the time, governor of New York, uh, Franklin Roosevelt about, or maybe it was LaGuardia. I can't remember, but about how he, when he was building those parkways, they made him, the, the law stated that the, uh, overpasses had to be 10 feet high so buses could get down. And uh, Moses, who was a racist, uh, didn't like the <laughs> idea of like, funny. You know, I'm sorry. people coming in, right? So so he was like, no, I'm not going to do that because he wanted it to just be the exclusive province of rich people who had cars. And they fought and fought and fought. And for maybe the only time for, you know, 10 years in the direction, they, they stood up to him and they're like, no, this is the law. You have to do this. It has to be 10 feet high. And so he was like, "All right, fine." And so he made them arched, and the center, uh, the very center of the arch was ten feet high, uh, but it quickly sloped down on either side, so buses couldn't get through. And he sort of said, "You know, I well, I I answered the I obeyed the law. It's ten feet high. See, it's right there, ten feet high. And because it was whatever nineteen forty something, it was too like the it was the construction was sort of happening in the dark." and they until by the time they figured it out it was too late for something they could do and as a result you cannot get any public transportation to run down those parkways and expressways i mean that's insane like if, it's 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 unthinkable and you know there's there's so many of those the, the lack of access to the water above 96th street and then the the subsequent um, gates that he put in that featured wrought iron uh images of monkeys and apes as a, like, uh, a just overtly racist gesture to the mm-hmm. black communities that lived above 96th Street. I mean, it, it just, the more, every page of that book contains details like that, that you just literally can't believe. Um, and it also, like you said, it just answers so many questions that you have about the city of, like, why is, why is the area around Yankee Stadium so awful? And why, was, why is 3rd Street in Brooklyn so miserable, 3rd Avenue? It's just one by right. one, you just learn every detail of why this city is so can be so maddening and infuriating and why certain neighborhoods fell into disrepair while others thrived. He's the answer to every single one of those questions.
4: Uh, on a personal note, the only book my wife has ever banned me from talking about was Infinite Jest. And I will not get into that now, but boy, would I like to. And it was around page 400 when I tried to explain the Quebecois wheelchair, separatist wheelchair assassins. And she said, oh, yeah. yeah, she said, I think I'm about done talking about this book with you, Gareth. And uh, if you could not talk about it around me, that would also be appreciated. The experience of the
5: power broker probably taught me a lesson, and it probably led me to not talk about Infinite Jets as much as I ordinarily would have.
4: Right. But what you did just describe with the power broker, and that's a great example about the 10-foot height, and he's established so well at the beginning as the best bill drafter in Albany. I think what this book does, it really captures that Moses succeeded by assaulting and twisting and manipulating language. And yeah. we're definitely, and I'm having a hard time looking at this book, not in our current moment. I'll, I'll cop to that right away, but I, how, I mean, like that is how our current situation in our current election with Donald Trump has happened, no? And the truth in media and things like that, like you're a writer, how do you see this use of language, um, and its relationship to power?
5: Well, I think if there's, a, if there's a key difference between current situation and that situation, it would be that Moses was a sort of master manipulator, um, but from the side of kind of brilliance and, and like brilliant arrogance. And Trump is a sort of master manipulator from the complete other side, which is just straight up lying and ignorance. <laughs> like he doesn't yeah. mm-hmm. like, <laughs> say what he will. Like, uh, you know, say what you will about Moses, but like his kind of his acumen was unparalleled in both his intelligence and his ability to kind of, you know, manipulate political systems and his he had this kind of uh, way of sort of worming his way through the system undetected until it was too late. Trump is just a sledgehammer, like he's just a gigantic <laughs> kind of loud, boisterous, you know, sledgehammer of a of a person who just smashes the truth into little bits in front of you and dares you to say, dares you to call him on it. And when you call him on it, he just says, no, you're wrong. And he keeps going. You know, there was mm-hmm. a moment at the end of the campaign where Trump was talking in Michigan and he announced that he had won an award Of of man of the year in Michigan, and he there was no such award, and he had never won it, and no one even blinked. Like it was just kind of like, oh well. Everybody just got exhausted. Like Trump just exhausts you by bashing you over the head with lies over and over again until you're just like too tired to say anything. Moses, I mean, there's a reason. You know, one of the only times he failed uh, is when he ran for mayor. And mm-hmm. it's because he was, the, he was the opposite of Trump. He did not want to be in the spotlight. He preferred to hide in the shadows and pull strings from the shadows. And, you know, in the sequence in the book where he runs for mayor, Moses describes him as not seemingly not even wanting to win. Like he would give speeches and he would kind of shuffle up to the podium and he would kind of murmur and mumble and kind of go through his thing and he would just kind of sit down. He almost seemed indifferent to the process. And it's because he was smarter than Trump is. And he had this, I think he probably had, there were a few worlds left to conquer for him and being mayor of New York was one of them, but ultimately Hel- holding elected,
4: elected office. York, yeah,
5: yeah. Yeah. Like he had more power than the mayor did. He had more power than the governor of New York. And he arguably had more power than the president. I mean, when FDR becomes president, he's still trying to oust Moses, and he still fails. So, right. you know, that the only, that it they they came about their like they they had they had the same end ultimately which was just raw power and control but they they went about it in two completely different ways you know it it, it was from it was like a from the shadows versus from the spotlight and i don't hmm. know which one i would prefer like i i don't know which 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 delivery mechanism I would prefer my pure evil to be, be presented. <laughs> right, uh, right, right, right.
1: I always find it poetic, and I, it's been a couple of years since I've I've read it. And I was flipping through it. I, and I do believe a big part of his downfall when he finally went head to head with Rockefeller. And first of all, can we just all agree? After a thousand straight pages, of this guy winning everything he's doing except for that one o- election. um, it was so gratifying to see him get taken down and become this bitter old man. I mean, I just it's what a wonderful end to this book. I loved how he his big move for so many decades was threatening to quit and finally he ran up to someone who was just like, "Sure, I accept."
5: And, then, and that was amazing. And then it he's was, just it like, was incredible. "Oops." It's such a great show.
1: I mean, I was just going to ask yeah, you I how know. gratifying did you find his downfall? having invested so emotionally in this book. And look, it's an investment. It's 1,200 very dense pages. And look, when when you first recommended it, I kept waiting for, and now's when he's going to become governor or something. Nope, he's just still doing park stuff. And I, like, I had no idea his story even when I first picked it up. So to see him pull all these strings and amass so much power in the shadows, it was so gratifying. I just want to know how, how you reacted emotionally to his downfall.
5: I I thought it was like... I thought it was, like, shocking in about a hundred ways. The first way was, my thought was, oh, that's all you have to do? Like, just accept his resignation? <laughs> <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> like, it, it's so crazy that he's the architect. He had gotten so powerful that he ultimately was the architect of his own demise, which is always the kind of most satisfying end of a story for whether it be, like, superhero villains or comic book villains or just your run-of-the-mill human villain... He was the he was the one who did it to himself, and he had done it so many times. He had just he had said that I'm going to resign, and I dare you to accept. And it was a way. For, it was kind of the ultimate way to kind of leverage his own power, and then to have Rockefeller just quietly accept it and give a press conference and say he is resigning was so incredible. I mean, it really was. It, it's a remarkable moment. I also love the detail that the reason it started at all was because he. Decided to try to have like, it's like the tiny of all of the things that he did, and there were so many that were so massive in their scope. I in my memory, it's because he was going to sell the restaurant. He was going to privatize the restaurant in Central Park, right? Isn't that <laughs> yeah. Of, like, and then and so it's like this tiny nothing thing. It's like this little tiny itsy bitsy slip up in a, you know in a forty year unchecked reign of power that included. You know, by the time it ended, meant that he had a fully staffed restaurant in every borough that only he was allowed allowed to go into, uh, (laughs) despite the fact that you can't eat in five boroughs simultaneously. And he basically had his own (laughs) symphony orchestra to play for him whenever he wanted. And he had, you know, uh, there were about 40 different gigantic public works projects that bore his own name. And this is like a, this is nothing. This is like a tiny little thing that he was just like, oh, he probably didn't give it a second thought. And then some wealthy Upper West Sider decides that, it's, that, that, that like, privatizing a little bit of Central Park is like a bridge too far. And, you know, a very short amount of time later, the whole thing comes crashing down. It's a, it's, it's a really wonderful end to the story. And there's, like a, there's, a, there's a way in which the only way—what I, I felt when I read it was, this is the only way it could have happened, right? There, there's no way that someone was going to become more powerful than he was. If Rockefeller mm. and Laguardia and uh, and you know FDR couldn't do it, like who's going to beat him? And the answer is himself. <laughs>
3: like, right. He
5: gets, right. You know, the only right. person who could beat him was himself by just kind of like making one more little tiny arrogant move, not sensing because he had been so unchecked for so long, not sensing that it was dangerous, and then pulling the same shit he always pulled, and then having someone call him on it. It's just a it's a perfect ending, and it's like again, this is why. It, there is somewhere out there a good movie or miniseries version of this. It's because of moments like that that are just too perfectly constructed and dramatic to believe.
1: So the final question here is a two-parter. Number one, you're a baseball guy. I want to know how responsible you hold Moses for the Dodgers leaving Brooklyn. And two, you're a writer. (laughs) You're a writer. Robert Carroll wrote this whole book longhand, as he always does. Can you even imagine writing a dense, highly cited nonfiction book just with a pen?
5: Well, the first question, I would not really blame him for the Dodgers leaving, I have to say. I think that West Coast baseball was always, I mean, at the time the Dodgers left, St. Louis, I think, was the furthest west that baseball stretched in America that was always going to happen at some point. There were three teams in New York for a very long time, it was, and the, the opportunities were just too great on the West Coast. So, you know, no matter who was in in power at the time, I think one of those teams probably leaves, or in this case, two teams. I will fully blame him for the unbelievably shitty quality of Chase Stadium, <laughs> <Yes>. which was <laughs> like the worst the worst, you know, his like little Roman Roman Colosseum experiment, uh, building himself a giant stadium for gladiators to battle in. Uh, it, it was at the time, it, it, at the time it was shut down. It was probably the worst stadium in baseball, or one of the worst, uh, and that is one hundred percent his fault. Um, <laughs> but I don't think he's, I don't think he's the guy that made the Dodgers leave. And to answer your second question, I in these uh, modern times, my hand. Cramps up when I write like thank you notes to people uh, for dinner parties or something (laughs) like. I can't possibly imagine uh, doing what Caro did longhand. I can't imagine doing it with a with a computer and like twenty assistants. Um, You know, I used to work (laughs) at SNL, and Jim Downey, who's the greatest sketch writer ever, who's Mm -hmm. you know been been associated with that show since essentially the beginning. He still, uh, to the best of my knowledge, he still writes his sketches longhand and then dictates them hmm. to writers' assistants who type them up in script form and i always found that incredibly comforting like it it I, I it felt like somehow the direct connection of his brain through his arm to a pen or pencil onto a piece of paper was like it is the purest form of expression as a writer and so i i always loved that he did that and knowing that caro did it for that book it makes me feel like like in, in some weird way, Caro writing that book, Longhand, is as impressive a feat as any of the feats that Moses <laughs> accomplished <laughs> while he was, uh, while he was, you know, building giant bridges and tunnels and stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing. I, I just, I, the entire project, uh, is, is so remarkable and the story is so important. Uh, it's, I feel like the main feeling I had after I read it was that, We just owe him an incredible debt of gratitude. Like we should all, we should all write Robert Caro a thank you note, longhand. For (laughs) for I
1: I love that idea. Now you've given us so much time. We want to thank you so much for coming on. Uh, People should follow you on Twitter at Kentremendous. Look out for future, hopefully future book uh, book recos because we we your your loyal book club will be will be watching, my friend. And then you know you've already mentioned Master of None. I mean, we, we've got so much we could we could promote here between the Good Place, which is a a breakout hit, Brooklyn Nine Nine, your your episode of Black Mirror. Uh, is there anything you want to you know, kind of point our our listeners to um, coming down the pike of all your many projects?
5: Uh, I, <clears throat> given the opportunity to point listeners anywhere, I would happily um, point them away from anything I'm doing. and toward uh, legitimate journalism that's uh, being Mm. uh, focusing on the current or administration to be and trying to correct some of the nonsense and BS that's out there right now. So my official recommendation or the official thing that I'm choosing to promote and hype would be uh, (laughs) like the Washington Post and the New York Times. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anybody who is, anybody who's actually reporting in a neutral fashion on the goings-on in our government. That would be what I would hope people would be reading.
1: Let's run through some of John Daly's most notable career golfing stats. 20 professional wins, five PGA Tour victories, one British Open title, and of course, his famous 1991 PGA Championship, where he rose all the way from, like, 10th alternate to winning a major overnight. But perhaps no fact about John Daly in his career is as compelling as this. He's now a best-selling <laughs> musician. After the ESPN 30 for 30 on Daly debuted, many people discovered his long-lost country music single, including the track Hit It Hard, which actually snuck onto the iTunes bestseller charts. Joe, let's take a listen.
3: I hit it hard, man. Good track,
2: Adam. It's catchy. It's good. It's catchy. (laughs) This is Adam being like. And there's a gospel. uh, He's got a gospel backing. uh, Got gospel singers backing him on the song. That's what makes it good.
1: I like, I actually like a lot about what John Daly has done in his country music career. And I have some advice for him, too. Well, let me start here. Adam, you are a country music fan. Uh huh. Where do you? Where would you rate him? Uh, in the, like, well, I guess what? What? How would you classify his sound? Like, what? What type of country is this? Typical. Typical country. Well, I think I think of typical country now as being like pop country. Oh,
2: he's not pop. Um. No, I don't think of. That's a good question. Uh, I think he, I would say typical and, and, but, but authentic in the themes he addresses, um, his ex-wives, well, his we'll struggles get to the themes. with alcohol. I mean, his
1: sound, like, is he, is he honky tonk? Is he, I don't even know. What are the, what are the types of music? I
2: guess I don't know enough about the categories, but he doesn't stand out in any particular fashion at all. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel, Adam. Yeah.
0: It's a cliche.
4: It's okay. lowest common denominator country.
0: Agreed. It's what you, a, it's what you'd make if somebody said, write A country. song.
2: yeah, he is. I a know lot this things- sounds like I'm being snarky again. I just am not. We talked about Damien Lillard. I thought we had a intelligent, um, nuanced conversation about his album. Ish. Uh, I don't feel that. I don't, Feel that, I don't, I, need feel that to res- <laughs> I don't feel I need to respect this in the same way. Here's
1: the deal, guys. You can say, Adam, I'm calling you out on this. You can say a lot of things about John Daly's country canon. You cannot call him cliche. Really, the man has a song called "Blue Collar Golfer." How many country singers are singing about being a golfer?
2: Take the word golfer. I mean, who he
1: does, and that's it. But he's not even really. Co- take, I don't even think of Darius. Take Parker's the word
2: golfer and put anything. Any other occupation in, and the answer is a thousand. But he didn't. He put in golfer because he's a golfer. He's a blue collar golfer from a blue
1: collar
0: town. Maybe the word Adam's looking for is formulaic. It's
2: it's, it's plug yeah, and play. Is, you know what? You know what? That's Joe a Reed, better word. It's golf club.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it is
1: better. It is better. I would say he's he's talking a lot about golf, which I actually felt like probably not where i would go from a marketing perspective with this audience but hey maybe i thought that same thing when i listened is he to is a blue
2: collar golfer
1: no he's a rich millionaire golfer yeah. yeah but he was a blue collar when he started he was a super blue collar golfer he had a mullet
3: okay
4: <laughs> oh yeah i mean he he, he did come a, out of legitimately like he came out of nowhere that is that's fine can i say something racist ooh yeah hmm. sure cool. <laughs> all country sounds the same to me. Like all contemporary country sounds like overproduced studio schlock. And I guess then I would pay this a compliment by saying that it sounds like that. So.
1: I just agree. I think country is far more, is far more nuanced than, I mean, you've got alternative country. You've got like more true honky tonk. You've got the poppy stuff like rascal flats and that kind of thing. I, I would like I would almost
2: have agreed with you two years ago, Gareth, but I do think um there are some artists that are starting to change that a little bit because of exactly what you said. I do think um the Nashville sound became a very pop influenced, you could say equally hip hop influenced uh mm-hmm. sound. And I really think we've gotten uh Summer Country has gotten back to more of a a rock or blues roots. Uh yeah. this album ain't at typical shit.
1: Hit it hard. Hit it hard is good. I mean, I I think it's a good song. I, I'm not shocked that I snuck onto the country charts. I think it's fine. It's fun. It's it's got a good sound. It's got that kind of soulful backing. Again, his soulful backing the best he is can do. the key. But he's got two major championships and he still produces a song.
2: You gotta give him some credit. No, I don't. We've been over this. I don't have to give him cre- I give him credit as a golfer. I do not have to give him credit as an artist. All Good right. for him for I will I will golf clap him for putting himself out there. That's brave. I don't have to like it, and I don't. Here's the thing I like about what John Daly's done.
1: Real candid about a lot of questionable life decisions. <laughs> like, yeah, that's his. I, yeah. lo- that's, I love it. That's I think good. it's on brand. That's his it's brand, honest. yeah. He, he could have easily just made everything like, I'm a honky-tonk golfer. Instead, he's talking about his three ex-wives, or, or you know, here he is. Uh, I think it's four ex-wives. I'm a X lost wife. soul. On, yeah, it probably is. I'm <sighs> a lost soul on a lonely road. It just depends, John, if you're listening to My Life, issued in 2002, or I Only Know One uh. Way, issued in 2010. Uh, here we go. The
0: I think oh, that's I the problem, though. He's got he's he's he's, oh, he's you a th- you did? he's a one trick pony. He's only got golf and 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 bad and choices hard and bad
1: choices. It's John Daly. You write what you know, guys. <laughs> right, <laughs> <I'm just laughs> that's why he's
2: only had one hit. You got a You got to mix it up, man. He he. At least he didn't write. he There's no songs about Jesus, as far as I can see. Well, he might have been a blue collar golfer that he was speaking about. Jesus. Yeah Was a blue collar golfer
1: Well he Well you know He They have Jesus take the wheel They He's
2: invented the golf in
0: oh, in, uh, yeah. in Nazareth
2: That is a song right You are right Jesus take the wheel Right I don't That's not how it goes But yeah That's yeah, the song. It's fine Uh huh Close enough Uh <laughs> Let's listen
1: Let's listen to a little bit Of blue collar golfer real quick I just want everyone to hear How great it is I also like Make
3: <laughs> Joe cut in other stuff golfer from a blue collar town. Doesn't know what is lost, doesn't know what is found. People said boy, gotta leave this town. Gonna make it big, gonna make it big, make it big someday. He's not a
2: dreamer. Guys, he's a blue-collar golfer from a blue-collar. Hey, town. listen, it's entertaining. I don't wanna be overly cynical about this, but um, this is a waste of time.
0: I, I, did, <laughs> I did have uh, a good deal of respect for him on Brad. One of the sites you sent around, there was a clip of him performing live in what sounded like a reasonable sized oh, oh. crowd. <laughs> and like,
1: I think I know the clip. Was he playing knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door? Yes, he was. Amazing. With a huge
0: sort of like digital screen projecting a waving American flag.
1: Hey, Gareth, him. he was covering the GNR version. He does not recognize the Bob
0: Dylan version.
4: Wow, that is bold! <laughs>
0: <laughs> but to get on stage and to sing, and he sounded all right, and he was playing the guitar himself. It's like you gotta give him, gotta give him some credit to Adam's point t- for going out there and swinging for the fences. You don't have to like it, literally. Right. But Swing you got
1: it, it. He does hit it hard. Uh, I want to throw some some stuff at you real quick. I found three nicknames for John Daly. Okay, online. W- w- Long John, amazing. That's uh-huh. good. Yeah. That's great. Wild thing. Okay, because cool. he like he was very his drive. If it wasn't on, was way it was long, but like way off.
2: Oh, I think that's interesting. I was thinking more of his his personality off, and off the off the too. course. He was just yeah. he was a he was Antics. Happy Gilmore really legendary. Happy Gilmore, yeah.
1: The lion the, uh, for the, for the it the was yellow because of his hair. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's an awful nickname that's for a, a guy like John Daly. That's a Daly.
2: stretch.
0: Long John is John great. the Lion Daly? That rolls off the tongue nice. No. It doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it does. Whatever. You don't he, have to like it, Brad. He does have
1: that song, John. I call me John the Lion Daly. No, I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> I, yeah, I was wondering. I thought for sure you were going to set this up with, he had. I found three nicknames. Can you guys guess which ones of these are real? And you're just going to uh, bullshit us. Oh. That would have been kind of fun.
1: The, you would have guessed the lion is not real, right? I mean look, are you surprised that I'm not surprised he was the subject for 30 for 30, but I am a little surprised that song snuck back on the charts. Uh yeah. Um
0: I don't really know We can
1: attest it's hard to get on the top 100 podcast list. <laughs> well,
0: th- th- we can. Uh not when you're new and notable, but after
2: Well, that. and that's where the question Just comes in of uh, Is this the same reason, Brad, you're not going to like this, Shaquille O'Neal got on the charts because of the novelty of it, or do people genuinely like the song? I feel this is like a novelty. Oh, wow. John Daly did this? How cool. And gone in two weeks. I feel like Hit It Hard is a legit country song
1: that if you heard on the radio, you would say this belongs on the radio.
0: It's like the country Mm -hmm. version of Gangnam Style.
2: Wow.
1: That's awesome.
3: I
2: think that's pretty good. That <laughs> pretty good. i gotta take my headphones off because oh. Steam's coming out of here. Oh,
1: okay. Okay. <laughs> you know how the huge trend, you know how there's a huge trend in taking old, kind of cheesy songs and doing a really spooky acoustic version of it that ends up in like a horror movie? Oh, so many
4: trailers are based on that. Yeah, yeah. Oh,
1: what if we got John Daly to do a slow country version of Gangnam Style?
0: No. Oh, no, no. Gonna, yeah. Or yeah. wild thing. I know
2: I have a nosebleed.
0: <laughs> wild thing cover and wild thing? Oh dang.
4: <laughs> and on that um, note.
1: daily. And on that note, we are going to take a break. We will be I grew up with John Daly. Uh, I can picture him sort of as a part of my sporting life since the time I was in middle school. So I've always kind of known him to be a colorful character, and yet I was so surprised to see someone pin him down and get this much out of him. <laughs> so and before we get into the music, I just want to start. What was the what was the process like to you know sort of sell John Daly on? doing a project like this and forcing him to be, I mean, he's always been someone who's been honest at times, but to be this introspective and to provide this much access to you guys?
6: It was a long process. Um, I think from when I first pitched the idea to ESPN to when we were actually filming was about 10 or 11 months. Wow. So, um, you know, I pitched them kind of focusing on the 91 to 95 from the PGA Championship huge win to the you know, blows after that, back up to coming out of nowhere again and winning the British Open. Uh, and they were into it, but they said, you know, you have to get John Daly on board. So it took many months of uh, back and forth and bugging his agent, um, who I think having 30 for 30 and that name behind it helped because uh, they'd been pitched on stuff before. Um, I think he was excited about the fact. I kept trying to sell him on the fact that he would be the first golfer to be a, have a 30 for 30 done on him, which he, I think his ego liked that a little bit.
5: Yeah.
6: Um, so, but you know, there were it, he's someone who has been burned by the media in the past. Doesn't have that much trust in people he doesn't know. So it took a lot of convincing, and we had had him initially agree to do it, and we had gotten cameras ready. And we were going to go down and uh, shoot him at the Masters, that scene in the film where, where you see him kind of selling pants at Hooters um, outside of, <laughs> in Augusta, outside of his bus there. So we were ready to go. And then like a few days before, got a call from his agent saying, you know, we're not sure, you know, John's not sure he wants to do it. So we decided, he was, I was like, well, just let us come down and talk to him. We won't bring cameras. So well, we just packed the camera anyway and went down and met him um, and had, wings and, you know, hung out on his bus and just talked it out. Um and just convinced him that, you know, we weren't it wasn't gonna be just like a hatchet job where we're gonna try to, you know, be fair to his story um and tell the ups and the downs there's a chance for him that, you know, something he could look back on twenty years later and um be proud of. And also maybe a chance to have people take a second look at his career and his legacy and, and gain some more fans out of it. So um after that conversation, he was like, All right, get your cameras and start filming. So so we went from there. Um and you know, in the interview it was a pretty lengthy process. It was we did the first interview over over the course of two days, so probably like five or six hours of interviews. Um, and then went back again six months later as we were finishing the film to yeah. Arkansas and interviewed him again. So all of that interview is it it's it looks like one interview, but it's actually shot over the course of three days. So I think that helped. Um have him open up, but it wasn't just like one three-hour setting yeah. um, Sitting where we were going to do it. Um, we had time with him and we could take breaks and, and talk about stuff. And and then going back six months later after he knew us more, it would enable him to open up some more. So um, it wasn't easy, but it, it, but it was a fun one.
1: First of all, is he a traditional wing sauce guy or more like smoky barbecue?
6: I think as long as it's a wing, he's happy to eat it. <laughs> so, uh, no, he's not too picky in that way. Uh,
1: since the... Since the film has has come out, number one, it's been sort of, you know, just enormously praised. Uh, congratulations. The reception's been amazing. Thank you. And, and and I know that it's easy for people to kind of shrug and say, well, it's thirty for thirty. Not all thirty for thirties are received well. Some land like big, some land with a real thud. You have to be pretty happy about the reception and the way that it's gonna kind of have sparked a, a, a dialogue with media and fans, right?
6: Definitely happy. Um it's funny because we finished it maybe, I think, in February of this year because we premiered at South by Southwest. So then it was just a bit of a waiting game to find a slot on ESPN for it. So um, it, it was exciting to kind of have you know, a premiere earlier in the year, but then also finally have it out on ESPN and see the reception. And I wasn't sure how golf fans would react to it just because we were kind of making it for a wider audience and we could, you know, with only 15 minutes to tell the story um you can't go so deep into each tournament and how he did but it seemed like the golf world liked it too so i was happy about
1: that now in the you know weeks since this thing has aired his country song hit it hard has gone back onto the itunes country charts number one (laughs) that's probably the biggest feat of of everything involved in this and i'm sorry to say that number two are you going to get a piece of the a piece of the action here I'm, i'm sure he's getting a small residual from from apple (laughs)
3: <laughs> no
6: residuals on my end But I was just happy we got the song in there It's funny like the first uh, I knew the song existed But we kind of stopped thinking about it for a while And then the first shoot we did The longer shoot we did with him Which was down in Arkansas uh, Last June of 2015 And we were just like chatting with him and, and we hadn't really done an interview yet And he comes out with like a pack of CDs To our crew and just like hands, hands One out to each of us Which we thought was hilarious so then we were like in our you know in our minivan driving around Arkansas listening to Hit It Hard on repeat and we we're like we got to get this song in somehow but um, <laughs> it took a while to license it you know there's tricky parts about licensing music but the 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 video at the end of him performing the song was the last thing we shot with him of yeah. the entire documentary it took some convincing and and it was after an interview and we got uh, Front Street Grill which is the uh, one of the only eateries in Dardanelle, Arkansas, and, and his brother works there, and, his, and one of his best friends runs the place. So we got that—we uh, got him to, to perform with a with a local band there uh, one night and, and filmed it. And, and so that was—it <laughs> it, it wouldn't have been the same movie without uh, without that song in there.
1: Did you ever have? Be honest. Did you ever have like a like a late drunken night where the you guys are sitting around? And you say, "Let's just score this whole bad boy with with original daily songs." <laughs>
6: Definitely something we thought about. Um, <laughs> if, if he was a little more reliable, we probably would have considered it. But uh, that's why we had a year to film with him, just in case. Um, but uh, no, the guy—he loves playing music, and you know, like either if you can, if you just like Google John Daly singing, like there's tons of stuff coming up where he's like singing "Knock It On Heaven's Door" with people right. like, hanging out with Hootie and the Blowfish. It's like he loves music, um, and so I think. You know, once we got him up there to perform, um, and, uh, he, was, he was into it.
1: What Were you surprised at all with how earnest his music is? I mean, he's, he's again, I, I mentioned before, I mean, he's someone who at times has admitted faults, but candidly, like, so many of his songs, and this is why country is so tailored to his brand, so many of his songs are, are sort of, check out all the wrong decisions I've made in my life. D- does that surprise you about him? Or having seen him and, and talked to him now, do you feel like he, he is... Very self reflective in in all aspects of his being.
6: Yeah, when you get him in the right setting, I think he's self reflective and and he's not afraid to admit his mistakes. I think that works for us and it works for his music career as well. Um, Yeah, I mean, hit it hard basically. If you read the lyrics out, it's just like basically, you know, it it runs through everything we covered in the movie. So I always felt like it kind of fit perfectly. Um, So I'm not too surprised. And he is, he's a good songwriter um he, he'll he'll admit he's not a good musician like he has a voice but he's not good at playing guitar right um but you know he'll sit around and, and write lyrics on, on the back of a napkin and, and and get get people to figure out the tune
1: i always say you got to grade those things on a curve too because it's not like kenny chesney or rascal flats has like two majors <laughs> <laughs>
6: right <laughs> uh, no i think that's what it like everybody's shocked that like John Daly actually has a good uh, country music song, and it's in everyone's head all the time.
3: Right,
1: and and it's rare for someone. To, I mean, I know ESPN and Thirty for Thirty in your documentary had so much to do with the resurgence of interest in in hit it hard, but it's still got to be downloaded for people to and one, they get a, they get to preview it, and it's a it's a decent song. Now, the white whale for most athlete musicians is being seen as credible, independent of their their sports brand. I mean, Damian Lillard is someone who's sure. who said, you know, he's got a new album out, and he said, I want people to think of me as a performer and not as a basketball player, which my argument is there, don't have your first song called Bill Walton, but um, I digress. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do, do you think John Daly has enough talent where if he decided to focus on this, that he could be, you know, seen as a country performer in his later years with, with new fans who don't recognize him from his golfing days? Or do you feel like he doesn't have that ambition to, to go that big with it.
6: I don't know about the ambition. I mean, like, if I knew more about about country music and who succeeds and who doesn't, I might be better at commenting <laughs> on it. But, he, I mean, the one thing he has is he's got the name. Uh, people will at least recognize him somewhat. So, um, And he's got the ability to sing, and he's got some stories to tell. So um, I don't think, you know, he's got a, he's got a shot of it if he really wanted to commit to it.
1: Did you guys? I mean, did did he ever talk much about performing or bring you, I mean, did you ever have any time around where he said, "Hey, let's go check out"? So it doesn't seem like you guys were just had a lot of downtime around him, where he he would be, you know, saying, "Let's go down the street to this country bar and and see a raucous performance." But I guess I'm wondering how much his love of country music might have played into your conversations with him or his overall sort of attitude. Did he were there any nice moments with that where he talked about it?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think he loves. He, he's made a bunch of friends in that in that music scene. I mean, yeah, he's friends with like all the Hootie and the Blowfish guys. He's friends with Kid Rock, which is not country music, but he, you know, and then Johnny Lee's the guitarist. He's friends with these guys. Um, so I think he like he loves listening to music. Um, it's not like he's constantly itching to perform. I think he's got to be in the right setting to do that. Um, but once he gets up there, I think I think he I think he
1: loves it. I always think of Kid Rock as being the country music version of Rage Against the Machine. Like I know he's, I guess that's true. I know he's from Detroit, but he is country music, my friend (laughs) kind of to wrap this up. Uh, I guess what surprised you most about daily the subject, um, as you, as you sat down and you talked to him, was there anything, uh, was there anything about your interactions that you just said, you know, that is just not what I was expecting from him.
5: I think,
6: you know, I, I my job is to hang you know, document athletes and hang out with them or be around them. Uh, he's definitely the most down-to-earth or just doesn't care, act any differently when a camera's on or off. Um, and a lot of people, you know, you'll turn on a camera and suddenly it's a different person there or they'll feel more guarded or reserved. Uh, he doesn't give a shit, you know. It's like he'll he'll be the same guy um, either way. And I and that I can't say I was surprised by it, but it also was – I, I was happy about it, and um, I think it helps, you know, if he's an authentic guy and he's had, gone through a lot, um, but he's not going to hide any of it. And I think part that's, you know, a lot of athletes make mistakes or or they'll do something bad and then they'll lie about it. And I think that's why people turn on them. It's like dishonesty. And I think at the same time, like, if you flip that on John Daly, it's like he's been honest about things, and people
3: love him more for his mistakes
1: because he's relatable. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, there's that, that line of, you know, many – famous golfer or many golfers have been one done one and done champions. And he could have been that. Do you feel like he, do you feel like looking back now he's he's much happier, like, you know, candidly, seriously, like behind the scenes, do you think he's much happier with, you know, taking this very flawed, very colorful approach and, and leaving a much larger legacy on, on the sport than if he had just been a far less interesting (laughs) Uh, and flawed uh, flawed person who came and went in 91?
6: Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's worked out for him. I mean, obviously, I, I, looking back, I, I'm sure he wishes he'd won more, but um, being, I don't think, you know, I, I don't think he, like, other than wearing, like, insanely flashy uh, outfits that he does these days, it's not like he's getting out of bed and, like, trying to have people notice him. He's just, like, he's a crazy character, and, and, and so it's, it's not necessarily an act, but, the way he looks and where he's from ha- hasn't hurt him in any way.
1: Final question: You're with Fox Sports now. We had Alexi Lalas on for an hour interview about his musical career. What's it? <laughs> nice. What's it going to take to get Alexi and Daly on the same stage next year, <laughs> somewhere?
6: <laughs> well, yeah, I just had dinner with him for for the first time in Columbus last week. So uh, <laughs> that's yeah, maybe that's step one in terms of uh, a duo music performance going on there.
1: Well, hey, if uh, if. You know, the U.S. team doesn't start picking it up pretty soon. We're going to have a lot of free time to kill in a year or two.
6: <laughs> yeah, we'll work on that.
1: <laughs> well, hey, thank you so much. The, again, the, the the film is amazing. Uh, people can follow you on Twitter. It's at Gabe Spitzer, correct, on Twitter? Yeah, that's correct. And uh, and thank you so much for for joining us.
6: Thanks, Brad. Appreciate it. And we are back.
1: Back. In the sports world, athletes, coaches, media, they all get distracted by something. And then trolls tell them, stick to sports. That's BS. Don't stick to sports. Have interests. Talk about those interests. Talk about it with us. That's why every week we end each show with what's distracting us this week. Uh, Gareth, let's start in Brooklyn.
4: <laughs> I love it. Um... My distraction this week is, uh, this is going to be a little vague, but it is writing things down. Uh, I was listening to WTF recently. What's
1: vague about that? What is vague about
4: that? Yeah.
0: I'm doing it right now.
4: Uh, I was listening to WTF recently. I I don't listen to it all the time, but I do like to listen to it when there's somebody I'm interested in. And I listened to a very lengthy interview with uh, David Crosby really good interview but he talked about it at one point and one of the most important moments of his life was when Joni Mitchell went to him and said you've got to write all this stuff down and he said what do you mean she said you've got more good lines in the average party than half these songwriters will get in six months write it down and he basically said if you don't write it down it doesn't exist and I've been trying to write more ideas down or send them to just not sports when we have them and put it in the hopper. So my distraction of late carrying a notebook has been writing things down.
0: Nice. Very good. Gareth, do you ever find, Now I don't know, maybe it's too new of a, of a habit, but I feel like I always, I've got you know, for work, sometimes we'll get a lot of like free little notepads or notebooks or something. And you're like, I'm just going to pen and this, and I'm going to keep it in my backpack at all times and I'm going to use it. And I'll do it for like a week and then I just, you know, I forget it at home one day and then I just kind of, it just falls by the wayside. Have you found ways to combat that, uh, Honestly, you know, keeping up that persistence?
4: I, I, I've been through that as well. I just try to keep a notepad and pen in my backpack at all times. I mean, look, I'm a television producer. I've read a lot of interview questions. I do interviews and I was doing a shoot this summer and I realized I had no pen and paper. And I was like, that yeah. is fairly derelict because I realized I'd started to rely so much on my phone for that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So I keep a pad and paper with me at all times, but also if I, it's not handy, I keep notes on my phone in the notes tab. I have drafts of Gmail that I try to go through and kind of consolidate um, things like that. So just if... If the thought occurs to you and you're interested in it, write it down. Write it down.
1: Done and done. All right. Who's got, who wrote down their distraction? Both of you. Joe, go.
0: Sorry, Adam. Um, So mine has been, they don't come out very often. I am the type I talked to on a recent podcast. I'm trying to go to bed earlier, get up earlier. So I'm catching up on like late night television on my lunch break sometimes. And there's a series that I've sort of, or a, a series of videos that I've liked from James Corden. It's called spill your guts or fill your guts or spill your guts. Have you guys heard of this? I have not. Oh. He does like the carpool karaoke and like yeah, the movie reenactment. Yeah. 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 I mean, he's, yeah, yeah. They got that. all these different little sketches they do. So this one is it's him and usually one other guest, sometimes multiple guests. And they sit around this round table and on the table are sort of like a clock. You know, at each number is a disgusting thing, like rotten eggs or chicken feed or cow tongue or a dead bowl of dead crickets or whatever. And so the whole idea is it's this lazy Susan style thing where I spin the table around and put a dish in front of Adam, and then I ask him a very difficult questions. It's kind of like truth or dare, but some of the questions they get are it's just really fun to see like celebrities react to about like, who's a celebrity that you've dated that the media doesn't know about. And it's like, you either answer the question or you have to eat, um, you know, a bowl of dead crickets. One of my favorite ones, which got James Corden. I forget what he had to eat was, um, Jimmy Kimmel asked him, he said, name three cameramen in this room. (laughs) And (laughs) that's the best part about it is the reactions. of just like, Oh shit. And James, it just gets flushed and he starts looking around. He's like, Oh, a little different crew tonight, you know? So it's just a lot of fun sort of poking fun at guests, getting them, you know, sort of out of their comfort zone. And, um, they're pretty fun. So I think they've done like five or six of them. I would check them out. They're pretty fun.
1: Nice. Very nice. Yeah.
0: I like James Corden.
1: I, in fact, I've been, I think James Corden's cementing himself as a late night player is one of the best stories since mm-hmm. he was probably the biggest underdog of anyone who came out totally on the out show. Left field yeah um and besides maybe Samantha um B who was
0: like Full the only front still yeah. the
1: o- only woman in late night and got kind of cast aside from the daily show but has sort of found a niche. but James Corden
2: bravo yeah
0: Adam, Adam. baby
2: um so my distraction is country related and kind of relates to our our, our last com- conversation so while I do think um Country may be moving in a better direction. Uh, By the way, I feel the same way about rap music. that uh, Kind of formulaic these days. A lot of artists sound the same. But there's someone taking a bit of a different take on country. And I think challenging the establishment and the formulaic part of this. This guy's name is Ben Hoffman. uh, But mostly known as Wheeler Walker Jr. Uh, He put out a filthy country album uh, (laughs) that debuted number one on the comedy charts um, and also number nine on the country charts to say uh, this is comedy, but you folks are buying right into this. Some of his tracks include um, Beer, Weed, Cooches, (laughs) (laughs) Fighting, Fucking, Farting. And uh, uh, my favorite, Better Off Beaten Off.
3: (laughs) Oh, man.
2: (laughs) So if you listen to it, it's the filthiest thing ever, but it does incorporate a lot of stereotypical country themes. And I do think that he's confused a lot of the populace who doesn't know him as a comedian. He, He used to have a show on Comedy Central, wrote for Norm MacDonald as well. Um, he's confused a lot of people, and I think that's good. <laughs> I think he's challenging people. Is the uh, music
3: good?
2: It's catchy. Yes, the okay, production level is very high. Uh We that's, can. Li- that's key, though, because you we and I will up, listen to it on our next on our next long drive right. together. When we were we growing up,
1: we had comedy albums that were musical. we like Adam. Sandler Adam Sandler, Sandler was the big guitar, one. Yeah, and there's nothing to it. Every song sounds the same, except he's doing a different voice or a different theme. Yeah, you look at whether it's Tenacious D or Lonely Island. I think the best comedy satire has come out of people who get how to make a catchy tune, too. And yes. next thing you know, you're like me, and you're walking to the train listening to Jack Sparrow.
2: <laughs> you, oh God. Can I ask you a question, Adam? Yeah.
1: This is a new segment I want to introduce called Does That Make Me Racist? Ooh, oh, boy. There was a time, this is the
0: first and last segment. There was a
1: time when...
0: You're ready to pull the mics.
1: All, all the hip-hop I had on my iTunes, if you were to sort by group, the one with the most songs would have been Lonely Island. Does that make me racist?
2: Yes. Okay.
3: So, <laughs> as a matter of
2: fact, oh, man. Wheeler Walker Jr., his persona, he did a... Uh, ben Hoffman did a, a full podcast on joe rogan as wheeler walker jr and one of the lines he had he quoted another country artist but one of the lines he had was uh florida georgia line is rap music for people who are afraid of black people <laughs> <laughs> and then you, pres- you are hard on florida florida georgia, georgia. you are hard on florida georgia well line. if you listen i yeah i mean I'm. I'm not gonna. I'm not hating on them. Again, this is like, do you really, do you really dislike Trump? Are you more disappointed in him or the people who voted for him? It's kind of how I feel about Florida, Georgia line. I'm not offended by the music they make and kind of the marketing gimmick, and I do believe that's exactly what they're trying to do. I'm more offended by the people who have fallen for it. That's all I have to say on that. Okay. Fair so enough. we Damn. can continue that segment. No, no. Why don't we just end with my distraction, guys? So I built something that looked like a cross, and it caught fire. Yes, Brad.
3: No, come right. on, that's a legit <laughs> question. Like, should Should I make an effort to just buy a few more Kanye
1: songs, or like download a, like College Graduation in full, just to like skew the sc- tip? The yeah, screen. just to you throw a bone.
2: You know, I think the right person to ask on this would be. You need to ask Gareth for a playlist and you make up your own mind.
0: I don't know how to use uh I want to ask Garrett for a playlist because I do use Spotify. We need
4: to make a new just Sports Spotify. I've been derelict in that. So
0: Garrett send me uh a playlist.
4: I will. <laughs> All
3: right. I want so,
2: Gareth to do my uh, my holiday party this year and I'm not kidding. Well, it's a real talent of his. He should be getting paid for it.
4: I I Guys. I had a I had a moment as a DJ. So yeah, I'll do more of that.
1: All right, my distraction, guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, let's, bro. Uh, All right, let's talk the return of an enormously important television program, Vanderpump Rules. Are you guys familiar with Vanderpump Rules?
2: I've uh, I've seen it once. I am
1: not.
4: I have not. Pretty amazing.
1: It follows a bar. I- Oh, it's actually a spin-off of sorts from the Real Housewives franchise. Lisa Vanderpump is one of the kind of stalwarts of that franchise, and she owns a series of restaurants. This follows the pay- the, the staff in the bar. Season one and ends- was great because unlike a lot of reality shows, which is hey we're all relatively speaking, so speaking. Of- yeah, no, 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 don't.
4: don't like gareth i don't condescend to your horseshit poetry so you can't condescend to my yeah yeah. cool more indie rock that sounds
1: exactly this like florida georgia line for people who don't like hair dye great Hmm? um anyway we'll cut all that up (laughs) vanderpump rules season one was absolutely fantastic but vanderpump rules season two next level like top 10 reality show seasons all time Because this real group of friends they took, and it wasn't just seven strangers forced, you know, fights. It was real drama within this real group of friends. And then this girl, Kristen, took it to an unexpected place that shocked her other, like, both the producers of the show and everyone else. Like, she just started getting so brutally honest with stuff and, like, telling secrets that she had done. She'd bang this guy, you know, this guy and, like, this girl's boyfriend. That thing just went off the rails, and it was amazing. Hmm. Wait, real quick. Great story. So this guy cheated on his girlfriend with this other guy's girlfriend or whatever. And as the two guys are talking about it, and the one guy, Tom, says to Jacks, did you, did you sleep with Kristen? And he's, he goes, yeah. He goes, how many times? Twice. He goes, did you use a condom? And all Jax said was once.
3: <laughs>
1: the other dude's face, it like melts, as though you're watching the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. He goes from, he, you can see him put it together. It's like, uh, 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 oh, oh no, that's only half. Oh no, oh no. All right, that's those are our distractions this week. Let's end with some shout outs. Gareth, you want to shout out our special guest yeah
4: gabe spitzer um guy i worked with ironically enough we were born in the same hospital in new hampshire um worked that out many years later uh but gabe thank you for coming on the show love the john daly doc and looking forward to all the stuff you're doing at fox sports so thanks again
1: gabe wait do you have the other half of this amulet (laughs)
4: I have no idea what that's from.
1: Like, no, just like you're just twins. Yeah, <laughs> you're split up at birth. You've got like a broken amulet that you put together. Realize. he's got the other testicle. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh,
2: oh, oh! He's got three.
1: <laughs> <Ooh>. Wow. <laughs> What <laughs> Joe Reed coming strong to end the show, you know what? On that Ooh. note, booty rappers, stay booty.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Adam, that was awesome. They, they, I, I mean, think we should cut kind it of there, but go. Uh,
2: I'd like to say hi to my cowboys, my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, Lil Swanee Meach, Ron Mac, my other cousin Ron. Love those guys, booty rappers. Thanks, They all have ambulance. Good night, everyone. <laughs>